we're going to be in the same text we were in last week, Luke 15, 11 to 32. And I'll be completely honest, we'll be there next week, God willing. So there was no purpose for you to come today. You'll be getting the same sermon next week. So all those travelers who are listening to this now on vacation or when they're coming home later in the week, I'm actually messing around. This is uh, one of the most marvelous. This is actually a top three section of this text. There are only three sections, three parts. Is this still cutting out on me? Yeah, a little. Should I switch mics? Let me try it. Luke 15, y'all, I slept with the windows open and I have allergies and my head is a little foggy, so you never know what you're going to get. For, I, I don't think I've ever sang during a sermon. Would I do that? <laughs> Only inside. Luke 15, starting in verse 11, and he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But... When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. I'll stop there for today. One of the dangers with scripture is it can become ordinary and common. Yeah, you ever experience that? For example, you get Easter. Jesus died on the cross, placed in the tomb, rose from the grave, yada, yada, we know the story. Christmas, God himself took on flesh, came to seek and save that which was lost, yada, yada, let's just get to the presence. I mean, if we're totally honest and transparent in our flesh, doesn't scripture become so common it can almost become ho-hum? I mean, you ever think about this? There was a time in human history when God flooded the earth. The whole earth. And there was a man named Noah with an ark through which God preserved the human race and animals until the floodwaters receded. And when you go, for example, to visit the Grand Canyon, hmm, wonder where that came from? One in the Colorado River, just FYI. But it's like ho-hum. Sometimes we can be so familiar with scripture that we assume a text rather than hear a text. And I, I would argue this is one of the primary ones we do it in. 
let's remember what's going on here. What is this parable really about? Why does Jesus tell it and record it in scripture? How does it point us to the reality of who he is and who we are in him? I'm going with three points if you're taking notes. You ready for them? The return, the reception, the restoration. The return, the reception, the restoration. So the return. Last week we had um, the son made a shocking request. Dad, I wish you were dead and I could just have your stuff. The father made a shocking response. Here you go. Go hog wild with it. And the son uh, illustrated for us, evidence for us, some shocking living. Spending his money on licentious pursuits, hanging out with prostitutes, and it got so bad during a famine, he was not living with the pigs, he was living lower than the pigs who wouldn't even allow him to have some of their food. And we ended last week talking about repentance. He came to himself. But I want you to notice there are two parts of repentance, of saving repentance. First is an understanding of our sin and predicament that we find ourselves in, but the other part is an understanding of the reality of who God is. Notice when he came to himself, what is the first thing that happened in the text? It says, when he came to himself, he said what? Mia got it. Woo! Just Mia. Woo! Come on, guys. Oh, woo! There we go. When he came to himself, what was the first thing he thought about? My father's, look at this. He says, got to find it. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? What's going on? The first thing that came to mind was how generous and gracious and kind and merciful his father was. Hired servants. Remember Jesus told a parable. I'm looking forward to flat ground next week. Told a parable about the, these day laborers, hired servants, and this guy's driving by and is in his pickup truck. He didn't use a pickup truck. And he's picking up workers off the corners. Hey, you want to work? Hop in the car or work. He picked up some of them at 6 a.m. He went out a little later, 9 a.m. You want to work? Hop in the truck. He drives them to the field. 12, 3, he's picking them up throughout the day. End of the day, what happens with hired servants? They get paid. They get paid a day's wage. Why do they get paid a day's wage? So they can buy food for the day to feed themselves. Remember that parable and they all got paid the same? Well, notice this guy's hired servants, these are lower than slaves, they're not part of his, his care and his estate. They had more than enough to eat. What does that mean? He gave them abundant provision in their daily wages, excess, more than the bare minimum. And the son is banking on the fact that his father is kind and gracious and generous. If he would take the lowest of the employees out there and give them more than he's called to in Leviticus by the Lord, then there's got to be a chance that this former son of his could go home and at least have better food than the pigs eat in the pigsty. He has sinned against heaven, against his father. He's going to go home and he's going to fall before his father's grace and mercy and kindness. And that's where repentance starts. You understand your sin before God, but you understand the grace and mercy of God. And those two come together and allow us to come to God and say to God, against heaven I have sinned. Against you and you alone, God, primarily have I sinned, and the son goes home. Now let's land this culturally. What would happen? What would the son expect when he goes home? So put it in our context. you got a college-aged kid. 
they, they've been drinking and doing drugs and smoking pot and sleeping around and everything they shouldn't be doing and they flunked out of school and it's all gone bad and then one day you're sitting at home and they knock on the door. What do you do as a good Western parent? You low-life scum, you wasted all of my money, go and die. That'd be my dad. But I mean, a, a good kind, what do you do? What's that? That's, so you and my dad know each other. What we do is we typically embrace the child, welcome home. I'm so glad you're here. I love you. I forgive you. Let, let's, let's get your feet back under you. Let's make things right. I, I forgive you. You're my child after all. Not so much in this culture. Honor shame culture. This, this kid, grown kid, has shamed his father publicly. And that would have consequences that would affect the family's ability to, to generate income, to live in the community. And the only thing the father could do if the son came back was to allow the son to be shamed to pay the debt he owed. So the son would expect to be left at the gate outside the father's estate for days. And as the villagers walked by, they would mock him and ridicule him and spit on him and shame him publicly. And eventually the father might let him in. And he would publicly shame him in front of the community. And maybe, if he was super gracious, he would let him work as a hired servant and pay off his debt and work his way back into some functioning existence in society. That's how an honor-shame culture works. But that's not the reception that he had. That's not what actually happened in the text. And we read this, and we don't, under, we don't get the shock value. And I was thinking about it, and it's so hard to understand. First of all, when he was still a long way off, what does that tell us in the text? Well, it tells us he was a long way off, you idiot. I know, besides that. What does it tell us when, when he was a long way off? See, that's what we assume, isn't it? But do you think the father really stood out on his front porch for months and months and did nothing but look for his son with his binoculars? That doesn't really make sense. So what does it really mean? Well, here's what it means. It was daylight. To see a long way off, the sun better be up. Because no one goes out at midnight and says, while he was a long way off, the father with his newly invented night vision goggles said, wouldn't be on market for... I assumed the same thing, that it meant he was looking for him. Well, hang in, we'll get to that. It was daylight. Well, why'd he run to him? Well, we assume he ran to him because he was so excited to see him, right? My son, he was dead. Woo, he's right at the... Do, 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 right, if you're filming it, the slow-mo, see, I told you the allergies are getting to me. And they're like run into each other and decide. No, here's what you miss. Men in this culture don't run for a variety of reasons. One of which is they wore dresses. Well, if you're wearing dresses, why would I mean just go crazy and run? A man wearing a dress. Now, here's what I mean. Oh, see, I can't move. This next week will be better. In order to run, you'd have to pull up your robes. And if you pull up your robes, your legs are exposed. And for men in this society, especially men of privilege and esteem, you never showed your legs. So for him to run to his son would bring shame and dishonor to him. Men don't run, and so I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, how can I drive this point home? What is something in our society that is just so shameful no one does it? And you know what struck me? Will you help me out? What is something that's so shameful in our society that no one would ever think of doing it? 
Well, you ever go to the beach in the summer and look at bathing attire? Yeah, yeah so I'm not so sure that, that that's so shameful anymore. Streakers at sporting events? So help me at it. What, what is something so incredibly shameful that we would never do it? I mean, public drunkenness. No one would, no, wait, that doesn't work. I mean, work with me here. Going to the bathroom? Well, I, you hang out in the parking lot for a week. You know what? That, that may be the last vestige of public shame. I, Renee, Renee came up with it, not me. But yet on the news, don't you hear about people in, in New York City or San Francisco doing their business on the streets, right? You ever read Romans 1? Romans 1 is the epitome of when, when there's no more shame in a society. And the Lord talks about uh, men exchanging natural relations with women for men and, and women with women. Interestingly, in the world, like, homosexuality is so bad. You've got to say it with a southern accent to drive home the... And it is bad. But it's not that it's uniquely bad. Because you know what else fits in that list? Children disobedient to their parents. Mm, interestingly, what's that doing in the same mess with that? Well, what you see is a progressive... Uh, understanding of there's no more shame. And, and I just, as a side note, point this out. We live in a strange, scary time where we live in a society where there's no shame. The, the, the shame comes from not fitting in, but we can pick that up at a real conversation. The father ran to the son while he was a long way off because he saw him a long way off and he knew if the son came into the village, he would be shamed by the whole village. So what did the son, the father do? He ran to take the shame of the son upon himself so that the son would not be shamed by those in the village, nor the father himself. He forgave him and restored him. Do, do you understand this? Do, do you know anyone? I'm sorry about this. I got to get this thing gripped. There. Do you know anyone who would be willing to be shamed in your place and take their, your shame upon them? so that you might not have to be shamed? If you don't, I'll tell you about him in a little bit. His name is Jesus. And he didn't come off his porch to run to us. He came down from heaven bearing the shame of the cross. But see, when we share the gospel, we don't, we don't think of shame before God, do we? Now, how, how often do you think about sin in your life and the effects of that and shame before God? We're, we're just more like, bold. well, if, if God is kind, and who does he think he is to tell me what to do? Whatever I do is fine. That is so Romans 1-esque. This father ran to the son while he was a long way off because he wanted to take the shame of the son upon himself. Why would he want to do that? Well, hang in here for a minute with me. Because not only did he run to him, but he ringed him and robed him and sandaled him. And what's that about? He restored him, so he forgave him and restored him. A signet ring, the ability to pull on the authority in the coffers of the father. A robe, the robe of honor, and it's not like his dad had a closet of fine robes. There was a robe of high honor, one robe, the father's robe that he'd wear on the most special occasions. He puts it on his son. It's almost like we were robed in the righteousness of Christ. Could you imagine if Jesus told the story and intended that? He did. And sandals worn only by the the members of the father's or the master's house. He was made a son. Now let me ask you this question. You all still with me? You sure? Yes. What's a son? Yeah, culturally, right? We know what a son is. It's one of them creatures of the male variety. What's a son? 
We, we, we have three of them. And I remember when the first one was born, we went to a little ultrasound thingy, and they're like, do you want to know what it is? And uh, we're like, oh, yeah. Like, we had decided I think we would wait till they were born, and then we, we lasted like four seconds. Uh, yeah, tell us. And so they said, it's a boy. And I'm like, woohoo! You know, because uh, multiple reasons. I'm a little overprotective. So if I had a daughter, you still, if I had a daughter, she would at this point be 17. None of you would ever have met her. She would be confined to the house, never coming out. It was a boy. And boys, you know, they get to get muddy and tough and rough and be raised into men and protectors. And, and then Laura's pregnant a second time. Do you want to find out what it is? Of course, because we can't wait for surprises. We just opened our Christmas gifts this morning. It was fun. Thanks, by the way. I'm kidding. We didn't. And it was a boy. And woohoo, I'm all excited. And the third one comes along. And Laura was convinced it was going to be a girl, right? And part of me is like, well, you know, I might be sad if we don't have a daughter, like the father-daughter dances and like, I don't know, other girl stuff. If I had a daughter, she'd not be locked up. She would be a very dangerous person. But anyway, and it was another boy, and I'm all excited because it's boy, it's boy, it's boy. But, but what does it mean they're sons? Well, one thing that struck me, Laura's dad has three girls. And when they get married, you know what happens? Their name changes. And so Laura has kids, but they don't carry on her father's family name. But with three boys, my family name keeps going on, doesn't it? Assuming that they get married and have kids. And it's, I thought, you know what? That, that's kind of special. And that's the only thing that tied in with sonship. And it wasn't even that close to tie in. What is a son? A son is an office, biblically. You know when scripture tells us that, we are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And the women are like, what is that talking about? I'm not male, I'm female. Well, men, you're also the bride of Christ. So hang in there with the illustration. Sonship deals not with male genetics so much as it deals with an office. It was an office through which the family name is carried on, the family estate is cared for, and the family is provided and protected. So when he says here, the son of mine was dead, but now he's alive, the kid didn't actually die, did he? What happened was he gave up his office as a son because he told the father he wished he was dead and ran away. Now, do you ever hear people say something like, everyone is a child of God? Is that true? Now, see, it's tricky, right? Does God make everybody? So in a sense, we're all created by God. Everyone is created by God, but not everyone is a son of God because by birth, we've renounced our sonship. By birth, we've rebelled against God. By birth, we tell God, we wish you were dead and give me your stuff. I want nothing to do with you. So by birth, we don't have the position that, that God originally created humanity for. We've renounced it in Adam by birth. So all people may be created, not maybe, are created by God, but not all are children of God or sons of God because we've lost the office by birth. So the younger son had forfeited his office, and now he's restored with the ring, with the robe, with the sandals. He's forgiven and he's restored. Isn't this a marvelous story? Instantaneously, immediately, before he walks back into the gates of the town, He's returned to the office of sonship. And this is where the story starts to get really, really good. And I want to go into next week's text. So I'm being really careful here. Because I want to sit on this for a minute. But how did this happen? Do you picture God as a father on the porch looking out for people, just hoping and hoping they come home? 
oh, I hope they come home. And, and when anyone comes home, he's such a lonely old man that he just runs out and gives them all the stuff back and they're totally forgiven. It's called cheap grace. Remember, we had a lost sheep and what happened? The shepherd went to go and find it. We had a lost coin and what happened? The lady went to go and find it. We had a lost son and do you notice a flip here? Did the father go and find his son or did the son come home to the father? Now we'll round this out next week, but don't miss what's going on. The father is at work in seeking and saving that which is lost, but that which is lost when it comes to itself comes back to the father because faith results in works. So the father found the son and the son came home because he had been found by the father, but we're looking at it through the lens of repentance. And don't miss this. What is forgiveness? If you go up to my car and throw a rock through the back window and you go, I'm so sorry. And I say, oh, don't worry about it. You're forgiven. What does that mean? It's just kind of cheap talk because the rest of the day I'll be like, that stupid fool. Like, what is wrong with them? Why would they throw a rock through my window? I hope they have a miserable day and break their leg. <laughs> of course I would not think that way. I'm, I'm a saved man. I'm being sanctified. I don't know how they blend. Just don't throw a rock through my window. But if you throw a rock through my window, I'd be like, Charlie, go throw one through there. Anyway, focus, the allergies, focus. When I say you're forgiven, what does that mean? It means you don't have to pay to replace a window, right? So does a new window magically appear? If I say you're forgiven, what I'm saying is I'll pay for the replacement of the window. You're free from the cost of it. That's forgiveness. Let, let's say something more costly. Let, let's say someone harms you horribly and you say you're forgiven. Well, what does that mean? It's not the cheap grace version of it. You know, like the kids in the playground. Little Joey smacked little Johnny. So little Joey goes, I'm so sorry. And little Johnny's ready to choke him out. And little Johnny's mom goes, tell him it's okay and you forgive him. And it, nobody did nothing there. They both didn't want to get in trouble with their parents. Forgiveness is about cost, and it's about covering the cost. If you commit a crime and go to jail, what's the expression? You're paying your debt to society, correct? And when you've paid the debt, you're freed from prison because the time is done. The debt is paid. You break my window, either you pay for the window or I pay for the window, but it's about a debt. I can forgive you and pay it, or I can make sure you pay it and not forgive you for it. Well, look at the son here. He had accrued financial debt and he had recruited relational debt. And what the father is saying, remember the son says, I'm going to go back, be a hired servant, I'm going to work my debt off, I'm going to pay him back. <coughs> Never got to that part when he got to the father. Why? Because the father first and foremost took the cost of the financial debt. Son, you wasted a third of my estate. I forgive that. I'm going to eat that debt personally. I'm, I will take the consequences of financial loss upon myself. That's not on you. You're not paying it back. But what about the relational debt? How did he deal with the relational debt? In an honor-shame culture, someone had to be shamed. And he could have said, he could have forgiven the financial debt and then let his son run the, the shame debt all on his own. Outcast from the family, mocked by the community, spat upon, living in the lowest dregs of day-to-day -day existence. But he doesn't. He paid the shame debt by taking the shame upon himself so that it could be removed from the son. And here's where the gospel comes in so magnificently. 
Hebrews 12, 2, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I'll, I'll let you look them up, but this is what happens. Jesus came because God delights in saving sinners by forgiving us our debt against him. And the debt we have is a shame debt and it's a sin debt. And he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Had a conversation this week and the person was asking, how do you forgive someone when they just drive you crazy? How about an illustration like this? I use the, the, the rock in the back of the window. Assume that that really took place. Parents control your kids after we're done here, okay? I ain't got cash on hand for this window forgiveness stuff. This is an illustration. Let's say someone broke my window. But let's say that this week I was down at the, the art museum in Philly, which just opened back up. And I stumbled and I shattered a piece of artwork that was worth millions and millions of dollars. And perhaps there was someone, they had no insurance to make my illustration work. And there was some really rich guy who was in the room with me. And he saw the look on my face. And he saw that I was ignorant and foolish and actually almost did it intentionally, but said to me, I'll take care of that one. Million dollar debt paid off. Then I come home and you break my window and it's 500 bucks for a new one and, and I want you to just go to court and pay to debt and pay to interest and suffer. That would seem kind of silly, wouldn't it? Well, how big was your debt against God? You, know, you ever feel like people don't treat you right? Don't show you the respect that you're due? Don't give to you what you're due? Do you ever do that to God? Bless you. When we understand what our sin against God is and who Christ is and why he came, that's where forgiveness begins. See, this, this younger son, it would be really hard if, if someone bumped into him walking through the village and he's like, you're an absolute jerk. You need, you need to pay for that. Because they just say, wait a minute, aren't, aren't you the, the son who came back and was re like, I just bumped into you, buddy. Really? Can, can, please? Seriously? Forgive, forgiving others understands, begins with understanding what we have been forgiven of. Amen? Now watch this. They're going to have a party. Fat and cat. Landed culturally again. Anybody eat meat this week? Let me ask you this way. Assuming you're not a vegetarian, did anyone not eat any meat this week? We eat meat all the time. The, the, the thing that concerns me most about heaven is I'm, I'm still uncertain. If, if there's no death, is there, like, can you kill a cow and eat it in heaven? I'm, I'm like, Quran encouraged me last week that uh, God might create them, kind of like the fish, right? So I'm, I'm hanging on there for the holy barbecue. We eat meat all the time. In an agrarian society like this, they did not eat meat. Hardly at all. It was a meal for the most wealthy people only in the most rare times. And what we have is the rarest of the rare meat. And I don't mean how it was cooked on the fire. I mean the type. This is a fattened calf. This is a grain-fed calf. This is super fine veal. You ever have Kobe steak? It's like the Kobe steak meal for 200 people. It's how many people would eat off of, of a fattened calf. Hmm. So the father calls for the calf to be, to be slaughtered, the meal to be had, the whole village is coming. And here's the question I want you to think about. Who was 
the party for? See, uh, the sun, right? <coughs> but what? Like, uh, huh. who was the party for? It's a tricky question. Because, well, well, I don't know. Help me out. I got to end this sermon. I need an answer. I, didn't, I couldn't come up with an answer, so I'm leaving. I got an answer. Who was the party for? Right? We assume the text rather than hear the text. Well, we assume it's like, you know, it's like a homecoming party. Like, you know, your kid gets married and you have a party for your married kid. Who's the party for? Well, it's a married kid. You have a birthday. You have a party. Who's the party for? Well, it's for the birthday person. It's a birthday party, right? Well, what kind of party is this and who's the party for? And if you understand that, oh my goodness, does the gospel become magnificent. This party wasn't for the sun. What did the sun contribute to this party? Not, well, no, that's not true. He, he, he contributed debt and shame and dishonor. Welcome back, little Johnny. You smell horrible. Let's have a party. But through the sun, the party took place because this was a party, not primarily for the father, but it was a party because the father was so overjoyed. The father had such news that excited him that he said, I just have to celebrate. And I want to celebrate so grandly that I want you all to come and join me in this celebration. Well, what's the celebration for? It says right here in verse 24. It says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And notice, interestingly, it says, And they began to celebrate. You know, if you're a hip-hop fan from back in the day, you, would, you remember the whole West Coast, East Coast battle, right? I'm sure none of you were a big hip-hop fan, but, but, but it was said there ain't no party like a West Coast party because a West Coast party don't stop. And I was just stealing scripture. I didn't know I have to talk about hip-hop. <laughs> there ain't no party like a God-honoring gospel party because a gospel party never ends. They began to celebrate. The father so delighted in his compassion, in his grace, in his mercy, in saving his son, that he had an exuberant party and invited people to enter into his celebration over his restored son. You and I in the flesh, we like to, we like to live with the spotlight on us, right? What's the most exciting birthday of the year? Your birthday. Well, what do, you, what do you look at? What do you use a mirror for? Look at yourself. Who's the first one you think about in the morning when you get up? I don't imagine you woke up this morning and the first thought came to your mind. I wonder how Renee is this morning. I should pray for her. Right? Am I being honest? You woke up this morning and your first thought was, how am I feeling this morning? Ugh. Then you go to the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you check out. Your, and you're, 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 you know, what, what does me want to eat? What kind of coffee is me going to have this morning? Where does me want to sit to read my Bible? Why is you making noise intruding upon me's space, right? We, we like to focus on us. Well, the gospel is this joyful opportunity where the spotlight, rather than burning us, is placed back on Christ and we see ourselves properly in the celebration. Now, look at the son. He's part of the celebration because what was the father celebrating? That his son was back and restored. If you're a child of God, do you understand the security, the intimacy, 
that you have as a child of God through Christ? Do you understand that when scripture refers to us as the apple of his eye, that we are the joy of God, God delights in us, he cares for us, he provides for us. I mean, really, do you, why would you seek the approval of man if you have the approval of God? But life isn't about you, it's about you glorifying God, it's about you testifying to who God is. If you, if you go back and we're landing the plane here, you remember when God gave the Ten Commandments? Do you remember how that took place? He said, here are Ten Commandments. If you keep them, you might be saved, right? Wrong. He said, I've chosen you. I've delivered you. Now, in light of that, these are the commandments you keep. You don't keep the commandments to be saved. You keep the commandments because God has saved you. You basically live like a son. Well, you remember the Ninth Commandment? Anyone know what the ninth commandment is? Now I'm nervous. I hope I got this right. Something about bearing false witness. Amen? You can double check me on that Exodus 20. That's one of the commandments. I think it's number nine. If it's not, just, you know, quietly edit that. You know what bearing false witness or false testimony is? It's about not speaking or living in light of truth. And one of the joys we have as children of God is living in light of truth, keeping God's commandments because we know who he is and who we are, staying out of the pig pen and staying in the Father's celebration. So we're actually not at the, the, the climax of this parable yet. We are right there. Now it says now. See, Jesus set this all up to get to verse 25, and he says, now. His older son was in the field. Oh, man, watch where this goes. But that's going to be next week where we go with this. For this week, I want you to understand God delights in saving people and our life is a joy and a delight as we understand it's about us pointing to the God who saves, trusting in the God who saves as we intimately know the God who saves and how he thinks of us. If I asked you to describe yourself, I'm curious what your description would be like. Would it be, I am a son of God dearly and intimately loved by God, protected by and provided for by God to live with him forever. That's me. That's usually not our first answer, is it? But it should be. I'll give you a little side note, and this is where we'll stop. The son said he had sinned against heaven and against his father, correct? And he comes back, and in this parable, Jesus is telling the father forgives him for all of the sin that he's committed against the father, the financial and the relational, correct? Now, what do you think the Pharisees are thinking at this point? Well, what about the sin against God? That's all well and good if his father wants to forgive him, but what about the sin against God? Who's going to deal with that sin against God? You imagine that going through their minds as they're looking at Jesus himself? the very answer to that question. My friends, there ain't no party like a gospel party because a gospel party doesn't stop. The biggest problem that we who are saved have is that we forget who we were, how we were saved, and how God thinks of us. Do you ever feel like a miserable failure? Would God say you are in Christ? You ever feel like nobody cares about you or thinks about you? Would God think or say that if you are in Christ? Do you ever feel like there's no purpose in your life and it's all a waste? Well, would God tell you that if you are in Christ? 
the joy of the son, the joy of us, is a restored and new identity for this, for this younger son as a son, for us as sons of God, children of God in Christ, delighting in the fact that God himself delights in us. Now, his older son, we'll get to that next week. Let's pray. Father God, would you help us? There, there is so much magnificent truth in your word, even in this small little pericope that we're looking at, uh, 21 verses. Lord, would you just cause our minds to not be overwhelmed with too much, but at the same time not underwhelmed by too little. Father, help us to not just pray so easily and casually as we say, Father, but actually think about the fact that you are our Father by grace through faith, and we are not just your children. We have been placed in the position in the office of sonship in Christ. There is no difference or distinction between male or female, Jew or Gentile. In Christ, all are sons of God. We will all reign with Christ. We all have full access to your assets for your glory. We are robed in the righteousness of Christ. Father, help us to marvel not only at that truth, but how that truth came to be. While we were lost, you, you came to seek and save that which was lost, as we'll see in Luke 19. You didn't stand on your porch and see us while we were a long way off. You came down from heaven. We have the incarnation. Lord God, we distort Christmas by focusing on baby Jesus staying a baby. But that was no ordinary baby. Your name was Jesus, Emmanuel, God saves, God with us. And you came to save not sheep or coins, but image bearers who had rebelled against you, who had shamed you, who had dishonored you, who had wasted your assets. Lord God, you bore those debts upon yourself. You forgave us and you restored us. Lord, help us to marvel at that. And Lord, encourage us. Encourage us with the reality of the truth that you delight in your children. Perhaps we grew up with fathers where we were more of a piece of furniture. Perhaps we grew up with fathers who enjoyed us kind of sometimes. Uh, but Lord, none of us grew up with a father like you. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, perfectly loving in all your ways, caring for your children perfectly. And Lord, I pray that we would be the children you have saved us to be, that you mature us to be. I pray that we would be children who boast in their daddy, in the glory and majesty and might and splendor and holiness and justice, as well as mercy and grace of our Heavenly Father where we would go out into a world and declare your excellencies, letting people know that our God saves. Lord, thank you that you are exactly who you say you are and that we are exactly who you say we are in Christ. Lord Jesus, in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, Jay's going to close us out with a song. And I'm curious right before he plays, how many reasons can you think of to praise and thank God. Just give me a number. Five, seven, eleven. How many reasons? Just a thousand? Well, how about ten thousand reasons? <laughs>